Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of the Philosophy Department at King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about magic in the medieval age with Charles Burnett, who is professor of the history of Islamic influences in Europe at the Warburg Institute in London. Hi, Charles. Hello. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Nice to be here. Again, uh, you actually came on before with Dag Hasse to do a discussion of the influence of and translations of Arabic philosophical and scientific works in Latin. And we're going to be touching that, on that again in this interview. But we're focusing on magic. So maybe you can start by telling us what we're going to be meaning when we say magic. What would you understand by the term magic, and what would the medievals have understood by the term magic? Well, that's a very difficult question, and has been much debated by scholars, um, so much so that many scholars prefer not even to use the word magic for magic, as it were, but would prefer to substitute something like occult sciences, or necromancy, or um, prestigia, um, or hermeticism. The strange thing is that magic, magica, although it's a classical term, probably of Persian origin, um, is not very much used in the Middle Ages. And so when you're talking about magic in the Middle Ages, you're talking about a term which would probably would not have been understood um, by most medieval scholars. It becomes used again in the Renaissance. But the most common word for what we might presume to be magic in the Middle Ages is necromancy or negromancia. I suppose if you try to define it, um, you couldn't do better than to start with the def- definition which we find in the Speculum Astronomiae, which has been attributed, which is often attributed to Albertus Magnus. Now there's a question mark as to actually who wrote it, but we know that it came into being um, in the 1260s. And there, negromancy or necromancia is divided into three parts. And one kind involves the invocation of spirits, um, or daimones, spiritus or daimones, and the use of what we call suffumigations, incense. Um, another part simply involves the use of exotic languages and unrecognizable words usually inscribed um, on materials, like a talisman. And a third kind is using simply um, the powers of nature, the powers of the planets, powers of the four elements, and so on. And these three parts encompass quite a lot of what one might discover, what one might describe as being magic in the Middle Ages. The first type that you mentioned, which is demonic or involves spirits and is associated with incense, is the idea there that these demons are smoky beings and that they're sort of quasi-physical? They Well, absolutely. I mean, they are attracted by the incense and the whole th- um, purpose of this magic, which is often described as being ceremonious magic, you have to 
wear special clothing, you have to um, um, have a special kind of altar, you have to do things at a special, a significant time, usually astrologically determined. Um, their whole purpose is to summon these spirits so that they do your will. So they actually follow commands or at least are willing to consider requests. Maybe. Well, you've got to subdue them. You've got to make them follow your <laughs> commands. And they are described. I mean, here um, uh, there's a considerable literature on on the nature of spiritus or daimonas in Arabic, ruhani art. Um, and they are described as being part corporeal and part incorporeal. They're corporeal to the extent that they can actually use their senses, i.e. they can hear and see. They're, therefore, they hear the invocations that you um, direct them to. And they're semi-corporeal in the sense that they dwell halfway between the material earth and the completely incorporeal heavens where the angels and God and his saints dwell. And this is an idea that goes back to antiquity. Obviously. Oh, it does, yes. In fact, uh, one of the most um, detailed discussions of the nature of these spirits is in Chalcidius's commentary on Plato's Timaeus. Right, okay. Now, the, in terms of the things that you can accomplish using magic, it seems to me as a, a real outsider to this whole uh, literature that one of the main things you can achieve is somehow uh, predicting the future. And I don't know whether that is something that you could do by asking a demon, but things like astrology, which might, we might also think has something to do with magic, for example, and other forms of uh, prediction, those, I think, I mean, I would have thought that that falls under the heading of magic, but what you were just describing, the three kinds of magic you just described, seem to be rather different. Well, yes, I suppose the magic that I have been describing is the magic that puts power into the practitioner's hands, he's able to change the future, he's able to change situations, he's able to destroy an enemy, he's able to make people love each other. Um, as long as what he does, though, is still in conformity with the um, position of the heavens. So there is an element of choice and of, if you like, astrological prediction. Um, and for that reason, again, going back to the speculum astronomiae, the use of talismans, the summoning of spirits and so on to affect the future is described as being one, uh, the division of astrology, which is called elections, choices, choices for, how, for the future. There is, of course, um, the whole area of um, uh, the mantic arts, um, Again, they have a special name, which are simply predictive. I mean, using geomancy, for example, where you use um, dots randomly cast on the sand and uh, rearrange them into geomantic figures, and the figures will tell you the future or tell you what's going on, hidden things. A scapulomancy, where you look at signs, um, um, marks on shoulder blades extracted from sheep, and, uh, and other sort of legends on, whereby you can just predict the future. And, of course, astrology is described as being the most perfect way of prognosticating the future. But by the time you get to astrology, you're, well, let's say, on the borderlines of magic because astrology really shouldn't and wasn't described as being a magical art except by its opponents. Right. So, actually, you said before that sometimes people use the phrase occult sciences, and that might encompass what you're describing as magic, also astrology, and perhaps also alchemy. 
Right. But I guess you're suggesting that we should keep these three things separate. Right? Well, it's Even quite true that occult other, sciences is a much better um, general term for the whole, um, for all the, to, to encompass all these different arts, crafts. But one can also go back to uh, the distinction already in the speculum astronomy between, let's say, spiritual or ceremonious um, magic and natural magic. And natural magic, you're dealing entirely with forces in the nature, nature which are already there. And that, you might say, is closer to well, natural science and, and indeed to astrology, because you're, you're finding out actually what the situation in the universe is, um, the best time for doing things, the best time for bringing together um, sub, uh, objects, um, materials and so on, in order to affect something else. But, uh, so that's where we might start thinking that the occult sciences come very close to being related to philosophy, or are most related to philosophy, or most straightforwardly related to philosophy? Well, yes, especially if you then consider what are called the occult natures, for, for example, in, in the Aristotelian tradition, everything natural um, causes and effects are usually explained in terms of um, the relationship between the four elements, four qualities. But there are many things in nature which do not follow this, whose explanation cannot be derived from Aristotelian peripatetic philosophy, such as the magnet. I mean, why does the magnet, magnet draw iron towards it? Uh, towards it? Um, all action at a distance um, has to be explained and can't be explained simply in elemental terms. Um, and so um, everything, well, many things in nature are considered to have occult qualities specific to them, to their species, by which they do things which are not explicable in terms of Aristotelian physics, but are natural all the same. And so magic in this case would be a way of manipulating, discovering and manipulating these occult features, and then other kinds of magic involve discovering and manipulating other kinds of entity that aren't yes. available to the naked eye, so to speak. So things like demons. Well, of course, yes, yes. And this includes the whole area of medicine, for example, that different herbs, different drugs have their specific qualities, their occult qualities, by which they can heal people. Right. And, of course, um, medicine, well, if you like, medicine is another practical art which involves changing nature for the better. At least one hopes that most doctors are trying to change things for the better. And so medicine is ranged alongside magic, um, or necromancy, let's say, specifically necromancy, um, the science of talismans, astrology, science of navigation, um, uh, using burning mirrors as the class of practical physics, practical natural science, or as Al-Farabi would say, the branches of natural science. All these are have a practical aim. So in a way, you know, they parallel to each other, medicine, astrology, magic. In all those cases, you are changing the nature around you. Before we get any further into this, maybe I should just pause to ask you a more basic question, which is, how do we know anything about medieval magic? I mean, you've just told us what it is, and it sounds like it's actually quite a complicated phenomenon that relates to a long tradition that goes back to the Arabic world, the Arabic-speaking world and antiquity. Um, and you've already mentioned one text which discusses magic, and magic is also discussed sometimes critically by philosophical authors 
uh, including John of Salisbury, for example, who I've already mentioned in the podcast. But there's also quite a number of surviving texts that discuss magic without complaining about it, but actually tell you how to do it, right? And I suppose that there's also what we might call material culture, like surviving talismans and so on. So can you give us a sense of the range of material on which a historian of medieval magic might draw? Well, indeed, the range is very wide indeed. You can there's such a lot at the popular level, which I don't think we plan to go into, um, like charms and um, spells and curses and so on, which have magical effects which are regarded as being part of magic. At least they incorporate what we call words of power. But then we have the learned tradition of magic in the West, which is almost entirely based on Arabic texts, translations from Arabic texts. The central figure in this learned tradition is Hermes. We also have Apollonius, Bardinus, we have Thabit ibn Kura, and we have various Arabic authors. We have Tumtum al-Hindi, who probably has, in fact, a Sanskrit origin. But these texts were all translated from Arabic into Latin. One characteristic, really, of magical texts is that they are anonymous. So um, we rarely have a translator, or we rarely have a real author, uh, a named author. The authors are the sages of antiquity, and the translators remain anonymous, so it's very difficult to say exactly when these texts came into Europe. But we do have some early manuscripts from the 12th century, especially associated with um, Hugo of Santalia, who was a specialist in hermetic literature. And then we start having the discussions of these texts, often in um, critical ways like William of Auvergne in the early 13th century in his De Universo, who names a whole lot of magical texts just in order to condemn them. Hmm. Oh, and is it actually the case that these Arabic-Latin translation texts, are they really based on Arabic texts? I mean, do they make up... I mean, I, of course, some of them are, and sometimes we even have the original Arabic as well as the Latin translation, but are there quite a few texts where they pretend that they're drawing on this long tradition and they're actually just making it up themselves, or is it hard to say? Well, it's in, in the last event. It is hard. It, it is hard to say. One can recognize many of these um, Latin translations as being translations. Um, but there's one text which is really quite essential, which I think you've already discussed in your podcast, and that is Al Kindi's De Radiis, mm-hmm. um, which exists only in Latin. So we already have a question mark as to whether there ever was an Arabic original. In fact, I think it's quite likely there was. But this text uh, has a distinction of being a rare text which actually gives a theory behind how magic works. And this is really an attempt to explain how action at a distance could be possible by invoking this mechanism of a ray. Absolutely, yes. And And the rays are, uh, it just so happens I know about this text because (laughs) it's supposedly written by Al-Kindi, who I've worked on. So, And the rays are invoked to explain a very wide variety of phenomena, including some which we would consider to be correct, like eyesight, Yes. but then mm-hmm. also things like the power of magic words, the power of the stars on the earth, and so on. So how, yes. how does he think that rays function in order to explain action at a distance exactly? Well, all he says is that everything emits rays. Uh, I don't know how they emit rays, but, uh, <laughs> but not only the stars, which obviously emit rays, 
um, the heavenly bodies, but also things on Earth. And the eyes, as you mentioned, of course, they emit rays because that's how they actually collect the material and the information to re recall it into the mind. But above all, um, the voice, the human voice, the, the verbum, the word, emits rays which have powerful effects on what is addressed by those words. And do, uh, speaking of words, do Arabic words then survive in Latin magical terminology quite a lot? This is an interesting thing because um, in order to invoke the spirits, the ruhaniyat or the spiritus, um, you have to know their names. <laughs> and so we And what language do they speak? Well, <laughs> you have a whole list of names which don't make sense in Arabic or in Latin. Very often they will have apparently Greek endings or Hebrew um, look like Hebrew words, names. Um, but the important thing is to pronounce them absolutely correctly. And when you're translating something from Arabic into Latin, since Arabic is generally unvoweled, Oh, right. then you can lose an awful lot. You mean they only Arabic. write the consonants, That's they don't write, right. the, they don't write so, the short vowels. And, so, and so the power of yeah. these words is likely to be lost when they arrive in the in the Western I world. See. Well, I see. Okay, I, I meant more whether they have technical terms that are like Latinized versions of Arabic technical terms, that, which you sometimes see happening in the Greek-Arabic translation movement originally, and then you see it happening again in philosophical texts. You'll sometimes see a word that's really an Arabic word, but they've just made it sort of a, a look calc, like a Latin, a calc, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I suppose you could say that even the word spiritus is a calc on ruhaniyat, and ruh means spirit, and the ruhaniyat is a, Because there are so many different words for spirit. I mean, sorry, spiritus in Latin means so many, many different ways, but they, they have actually chosen this word rather than, say, daimon or some other Latin word, uh, lava or whatever, um, to translate this Arabic word. The other context in which you see real Arabic words are in the prayers, where sometimes Arabic words are left untranslated, like, you know, if there's a prayer to the um, the divine light, you'd have the nur, uh, ilahi, just transliterated, and then um, perhaps a Latin translation over it. But but the Arabic words in themselves were regarded as having some power. Okay, so you're describing what sounds like a fairly extensive literature that survived down to us. And I mean, we should bear in mind here that what survives down to today would be a fraction of what existed then because it has to be copied and survive the fortunes of fire and loss and so on. So this was obviously quite a substantial body of texts, even leaving aside the more popular side of magic that you were describing before. And I guess that a lot of listeners might be surprised at this because we might assume that the attitudes of religious authorities towards magic would have been disapproving to say the least. So is that right? I mean, was it widely condemned by the church and by theologians and so on? Or were there contexts in which magic was seen as acceptable or appropriate? Well, to go back to that text I referred to at the beginning, the Spectrum Astronomiae, um, the three, of the three divisions of magic, the first two involving spirits and, uh, and unknown languages were condemned. And the third one involving natural magic, just the manipulation of the natural forces which were there anyway, was accepted. 
And I think you find this quite frequently, that people can engage in, if they're knowledgeable about how nature works, they can actually use natural forces for the good. Um, another thing that you find is that um, the magic ceremonies in which the spirits are used and that sort of thing, occasionally reworded so that they become Christian ceremonies, as someone called Jean de Morigny in the 14th century, who takes a typical way of actually sacrificing to the palpable, to the spirits, planning, um, um, invoking, uh, invoking the spirits, summoning them, and he makes it into a praise of the Virgin Mary and summoning the Virgin Mary. So that's one one thing you can do if you're a Christian. The condemnations, well, you do find condemnations alongside the condemnations of Aristotelian philosophy you know, in the 15th century. And, uh, Some magic is no uh, worse off than no, Aristotle. No. Um, um, but I think you could say, but maybe this is going to be your next question anyway, is that to a large extent magic went underground in the Middle Ages. You have this period, let's say, uh, very... Uh, um, open period when the translations were made in the 12th and early 13th century, and then the and then the manuscripts disappear. You don't have manuscripts. You have occasional references, well, many references, often to classical sources like Isidore Seville's etymologies, where you have a, a very large section on magic. But it's only in the Renaissance that these same texts, which were translated in the 12th and early 13th century, started to emerge again from the underground, as it were, and were copied and also received in a very positive way by people like um, Ficino and Pico della Mirandola. And, uh, and you have vast magical um, sumai. There's one by someone called Giorgio Anselmi from the beginning of the 14th century, for example, which includes, uh, probably, perhaps this is interesting, the mantic arts, geomancy, scapulomancy, chiromancy, but um, devotes most of its 200-odd folios to the art of talismans, of making talismans, invoking spirits, and, and changing things through these means. So you do find condemnations, obviously, but magic... Well, maybe there's another contrast. When you see magic described in Isidore and St. Augustine and so on, it's always in negative terms. Um, but when you start reading these texts which were around, which were rediscovered in the Renaissance, you see that they are very positive. They are texts which have good ends. I mean, the magician is told that, you know, magic might be you know, um, questionable, but it depends on the person who's using magic. If he uses it for a good end, that's fine. That's another parallel with medicine, actually. It There's is. a kind of yes. cliche, almost, that the, medi the medical doctor is the person who can poison you or heal you. Yeah, absolutely, And so the yes. good doctor is the one who heals you, obviously. Well, well there, there is um, an introduction to one magical text, um, in fact, Thabitim Nukura's on talismans, in which magic is described as being like an axe. And if you know how to use it for a good end, um, that's fine. But it can also cause a lot of... Yeah, chop wood, not people. <laughs> it, can, <laughs> it can cause a lot of harm. The, the more open attitude towards magic and more positive attitude that you're describing with the 12th and 13th century, the period where the translations came in from Arabic, is that because it's reflecting a positive or at least generally accepting attitude towards magic in the Arabic-speaking world that was then transmitted through these texts? I mean, could you, so to speak, get in less trouble 
for magic in the Arabic-speaking world than in Latin Christianity? I think that depends on the on the period and the place, really. Just as astrology sometimes strongly condemns, sometimes a, a part of court culture. One can't um, fail to mention the, the most important magical handbook of the whole of this period. That's the Riyat al-Hakim, or the, what became the Picatrix in Latin, which um, arose in Al-Andalus, in the court, uh, in um, uh, well, just about the time of the um, uh, of the breaking up of the Caliphate of Cordova, the early the early eleventh century, and that has what I think is one of the best definitions of magic. Maybe I should have um, mentioned this at the very beginning, but at the beginning of the Yad al-Hakim, magic is divided into three parts, but in a different way from the way that we find in the Speculum Astronomicae. Namely, it is all, well, the magician is entirely involved in manipulating body and spirit. And when he, it's always, always, almost always a he, of course, when he is bringing spirit to spirit, bringing to bear spirit on spirit, he is involved in what in Arabic, using a Persian word, is called niranj. And this becomes simply an opus in Latin, but we can identify these texts, which tell you how to contact and manipulate the spirit of another person or of an animal, of taming animals, for example. You use the spirit-spirit contact, contact directly. The second is spirit on matter, and that's when you take a talisman, something made out of material, it needn't be metal, it could be any material, and you inscribe um, sort of spiritual letters with the spiritual power into that talisman, that spirit on matter. And the third part of magic is alchemy, where you mix matter with matter. So this is a neat way, really, of describing the three parts of magic, which were which became known, of course, through the translation of the uh, Gaia at Hikma in, into Latin in the 1260s in the court of Alfonso and Sabio. But another... Um, uh, within the same context, also by Muslim al-Madriti, the composer of the Ayat al-Hakim, we have the Rutbat al-Hakim, the step of the wise man, and there you have the intellectual description of the intellectual progress, or you could say the Gnostic progress, I suppose, of the adept, where it's necessary to go through all the uh, liberal arts, um, you go as far as reason can go, and then when you've reached the top step, as it were, of the liberal arts, there are two more steps. The first step is alchemy, which is what is dealt with, in fact, in Rutbat al-Hakim, the step of the wise man. And the final, the ultimate step, is magic, seeker or necromancer. This is probably, well, a fine example from the Middle Ages of how magic is not prestidigitation or whatever, it's not playing tricks. It's not deceiving people, but it is describing the highest level that a human being can aspire to. And this, of course, is what's taken up again in the Renaissance, when you see what Ficino has to say. Maybe then, in conclusion, we could just say something about why the historian of philosophy should be interested in this whole phenomenon of magic. I mean, a lot of the magical texts themselves certainly don't read as if they're philosophical works. 
But on the other hand, even from what you just said, it seems that the magical tradition, for one thing, is drawing on the philosophical tradition. So the idea that you go through the liberal arts, for example, before you get to magic, that that is in some ways comparable to, for example, the mystical tradition, which sometimes compares mystical enlightenment to a further step beyond philosophy. Mm. Um, so th there's that idea, but there's also the idea that magic might give you access to uh, something that looks a lot like what philosophers talk about. So, for example, the operation of natural properties mm -hmm. on one another, mm -hmm. but in a deeper way, right? So mm -hmm. there's so there's both a methodological continuity and also a theoretical continuity with magic. That I mean, between philosophy and magic, do you think that's? Fair? Oh yes, I think this is very true. It's just a, another way, as it were. And what is described in magic actually is the achievement of the perfect nature. Other connections, of course, we've already mentioned, you know, why does the magnet attract iron? The occult powers, they have to be explained at least by natural science, um, which is within philosophy. Um, there are, um, <laughs> there's, a whole, um, there's a whole genre of magic called the Ars Notoria, um, which is relevant to philosophy because it is it's something which arose in um, the philosophy uh, faculties of the universities, the medieval universities, especially in Paris, which enabled the student to learn in a remarkably short time what he would otherwise take a year, years to learn. And of course, philosophy is one of the main things that he has to learn, or he can learn very quickly using the Ars Notoria. But this is based on angels, on, on geometrical diagrams, on sort of kind of contemplation of a mandala. Um, so that's another connection with philosophy. But there are, I mean, uh, there's a book, I don't know whether you've seen it, by, um, uh, by Nicola Vailparo, called La Vergle on Nature, something like that, the, um, which is all about, um, first of all, occult powers, and then um, the nature's hatred of the empty space. And in order to explain these unnatural things, as it were, certainly not following, uh, not explicable in Aristotelian terms, magical texts can be brought to play, into play. Right. Well, thank you very much, Charles, for thank coming you. on the podcast. Mm. And uh, join me next time to hear about something probably very different <laughs> as I get back to mainstream uh, history of philosophy in the medieval period in the 13th century, right here on the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. <laughs>